Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like the death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will not they wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that, that teaches lies. For the one who makes it trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So as Peter comes now to speak to us, why don't we pray that uh, what we've just heard and what we're about to hear would not just inform us, but also transform us for the sake of Jesus. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we praise you again for your precious word that teaches us about your will and your ways and ultimately guides us to your precious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning by the power of your Spirit that you would help Peter speak your word, that he would speak it clearly and faithfully. And we ask that that same spirit would help us to accept that word, that you would plant it in our minds and hearts, and you'd help us to humbly put it into practice in our lives for the good of your people, but ultimately for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Well, just to remind you where we're up to in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk has complained to God, and the Lord God has given him an answer about raising up the Babylonians. Then he's complained about the Babylonians, and uh, chapter 2, verse 2 to the end is about God's reply, is God's reply about how he'll deal with the Babylonians. First of all, he says in verses 2 and 3 that uh, what is being revealed is for the future, that is Habakkuk uh, prophesying about 605 BC, probably won't be around when the Babylonians are judged, but uh, God will certainly judge those arrogant Babylonians. Verses uh, 4 and 5 are hard for us to read because we, it's not the way we would write our literature, but of course it's in the conventions of the literature of the day. So verse, verses 4 and 5 are a distru- uh, God's words about the destruction of Babylon, yet in the midst is the promise the righteous will live by his faith. Well, uh, we need to be very clear that the rise of the Babylonians was the work of God. We found that, didn't we, uh, back in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am raising up the Babylonians. Now, the uh, Babylonians were uh, the, the agent of God, God's agent to judge his people. Yet uh, Babylon, we're also reminded in Zechariah 1.15, chapter 1 verse 15, was actually more vicious than God wanted them to be. So they were uh, God's agents, but actually they were uh, agents who exploited their position and were more more cruel than they needed to be. But also remember that uh, in Revelation 18, Babylon is kind of a symbol of uh, the destruction of the world at the end. We'll just turn to Babylon eight, uh, to Revelation 18, rather, just to remind you of God's judgment on Babylon here, which is really God's destruction on unbelieving humanity. Uh, we will get back to Habakkuk too, don't worry. Uh, the great words uh, of the angel, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a home for demons, a haunt for every evil spirit, and so on. A uh, voice from heaven, verse 4, come out of my people, don't share in her sins, so that you won't receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crime. And then uh, the prophecy, the angel talks about the prosperity of Babylon, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Uh, And the cargoes are listed in verses 11, 12, and 13 and end with the uh, bodies and souls of men. And then uh, in verse 6, there is a woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. And then the sea captains and those who earn their living from the sea uh, see the smoke and cry, was there ever a city like this great city? Woe, woe, O great city. Or verse 21, with such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Now, back to Habakkuk 2. The reason I looked at Revelation 18 was when we hear Revelation 18, the destruction, when we hear Habakkuk 2, the destruction of Babylon, we're meant to think this is not just a story about a city in the past and its destruction. It's a city about the future of godless humanity. It's like the plagues of Egypt. Not just a warning for Egypt and judgment on the gods of Egypt, 
but also a warning of the plagues also described in Revelation of God's judgment on the people. Now notice uh, the end of verse 5. These are crucial words, Habakkuk 2.5. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Then verse 6, will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn? The Babylonian policy, as we know from the scriptures, was to uh, destroy cities and then take the leaders to Babylon. So they'd done that uh, with Nineveh. They'd done that uh, in all the, all the uh, Egypt. They'd done with it all the cities they captured. They destroyed those cities and then brought the leaders to Babylon so they could keep an eye on them. Now, eventually, Babylon will be defeated by, uh, by the kingdom of Persia under Cyrus, God's agent for their destruction, as you know from the book of Isaiah. And Persia's policy was to return captured people home again. And that's why the people of God then returned under the Persians from Babylon uh, to the Holy Land, back to Judah again. And what we have uh, here is, uh, in verse 6 following, we have the song that all the captive people will sing as they see Babylon captured by the Persians. Um, and there are five woes. I've actually missed one out in my notes. This, the first woe is verses 6 to 8, then verses 9 to 12. The next woe is verses 12 to 13. Then there's a promise, 2.14. Then the structure returns to the woes, 2.15 to 17, 2.18 to 19. And then the final promise in verse 20. Now, someone has uh, commented uh, that tyranny and rapacity contain the seeds of their own destruction. So if you build a vast empire and capture lots of people, eventually the thing will implode upon you because you don't have the energy or effort to sustain all that you have captured. Or I think again of uh, the great words of Augustine of Hippo, the Bishop of North Africa, who wrote once that all empire is theft. And that is even true, may I say to the loyal British among you, of the British Empire, as it was true of the Dutch Empire and the French Empire and the Belgian Empire as well. And I think that Habakkuk uh, 2 is very instructive for us because it tells us how God judges ordinary nations. What we often do when we read the Bible is find out how God judges his own people and think, well, God is judging Australia like that. Actually, it's better to find out how God judges ordinary nations like Australia, that is, those who aren't his special people. And uh, please notice the woes here, the five of them, are about the kind of things that nations do in order to gain power and to subject people to them. Now, I'm, uh, though I was born in Melbourne, uh, raised in Melbourne, I spent 10 years in England, and I really love, I really love my time in England. But uh, reading, reading the history of the British Empire uh, doesn't fill me with great joy. Let me tell you what the British were doing in the early part of the 19th century. There was a nation called China, and China kept, its, uh, uh, kept foreigners out. It was a very kind of enclosed kind of nation. 
And the great wealth of the Chinese came because they knew how to grow and to treat tea. And believe it or not, the British were so ignorant of tea, they didn't know whether black tea and green tea was the same bush or a different kind of bush. They had no idea about it. So the British engaged in industrial espionage, as we would say, and they sent an agent of the East India Company, a Scotsman, disguised as a Chinese, which I find an extraordinary idea. <laughs> no doubt he had to cover up his kilt. Anyway, <laughs> it's a bizarre idea. But he went through China uh, trying to find all the secrets of how to grow tea, different kinds of teas, and how to treat tea. And then he stole tea plants and then sent them off to India, which was the beginning of the Indian tea business run, of course, by the British Empire. That was a wicked thing to do, wasn't it? That's pure theft. At the same time, the British fought the Opium Wars, during which they forced the Chinese to buy British opium. Proud of that? Not proud of that. I'm very amused when uh, Tony Abbott talks about uh, <laughs> the Islamic terrorists being medieval. Because, as you may remember, uh, such terror and rapacity was found here in Australia within the last 200 years. We, we killed the indigenous people to gain their land. Extraordinary thing for the empire to do because uh, in other, when the empire, British captured India, for example, they let the people who were there kind of continue to run their land. They took their taxes, but they left the land in the hands of the people. That didn't happen in Australia. And I might say as a citizen of Melbourne that uh, Melbourne and Victoria was civilised by rapacious Tasmanians who'd run out of room for their sheep so came and captured land against the, the orders of the government, I might say, and squatted upon it and made their fortunes. So uh, I come from an area which land was stolen first from the indigenous people and then from the government by people who are now regarded as great heroes of the past of Melbourne. All empire is theft. And we often bemoan the end of Christendom. Let me tell you, Christendom has been pretty barbaric. We may have claimed a Christian veneer, but the heart of it was not Christian at all. The 19th century was a wicked, a wicked century. How will God judge the British Empire and how will God judge Australia? Well, we have a series of woes and the woe is a kind of taunt song. I don't know if you used to sing when you, when you were young, uh, I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. Did you ever sing that? <laughs> well, that's exactly what this song is. And this is all the people captured by Babylon saying, now it's your turn. And uh, great to see that God is able to destroy a great nation, a great empire, in order to achieve his purposes. When I was a young boy at school, there was a boy on the jungle gym who was, I found, offensive. So I picked up a sharp rock and threw it at him. 
Unfortunately, my throwing was not very accurate, and the rock missed him, hit the jungle gym, and bounced back and got me in the back of the head like that. The punishment fits the crime, I think. At the school I went to, throwing rocks was a capital offence. You were thrown out of the school if you threw a rock. So I was taken to the, uh, to, you know, the nurse and had my head put back together again. Then came the crucial question, who threw that rock? <laughs> well, what do you say? <laughs> I said, I cannot say. And it sounded as if I was you know, busy protecting another boy at the school. In fact, I was protecting uh, myself from my parents' wrath. Another occasion, I decided that the boy in front of me, uh, the desk in front of me, was a very unpleasant boy, so I would paste together all the pages of his books during lunch. So I <laughs> crept into the classroom during lunchtime, got out some clag, opened his desk, opened all the books, passed them with clag, then went out feeling very superior. When I got back, I discovered I'd got the wrong desk. It was actually... <laughs> It was my desk. It was all my books. <laughs> Do you ever doubt the justice of God? It was perfectly evident then. So I spent the whole of the afternoon opening my books under the desk, trying to get them dry without being all stuck together. Well, that's something of the joy of these nations, you see, finally seeing mighty Babylon brought down to size. What are the woes about? The first one is about excessive wealth and extortion, about plunder and mercy. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you'll become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. Because you have shed man's blood and destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Will the great empires of the world escape the judgment of God? The answer is no. And those who've benefited from the wealth of the empire, will they escape the judgment of God? The answer is no. Will white Australians escape the judgment of God for the extermination of the black people? The answer is no. God is a perfect judge. And if you say, but I didn't do it, I can say, I didn't do it, but I'm wealthy because what other people did. Murder committed by others. The second woe is about safety and security by ruining others. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. And the next woe, verses 12 and 13, is about bloodshed and crime. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? One curious feature of Australia, I think, is that we are naturally worshippers of mammon. We worship money. And that's the basis of a capitalist society, isn't it? So, 
Our politicians often talk about the economy and not enough about the society. You could have a perfect economy in a rotten society, couldn't you? A good economy in which there was no good thing happening in the society. And one of the very sad things, I think, about the world is the way in which the capitalist dream of increasing wealth is uh, taking place in every nation now. We've all succumbed to it. Every Australian is a worshipper of mammon. And despite the fact that Jesus said you cannot worship God and mammon, we still honour those who are wealthy. We fawn to them in our churches. We commemorate them with uh, notices about their wealth. I was, uh, I'm on the board of uh, St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne. We were discussing running an appeal for $20 million to uh, repair the building, as you have to do when you have old buildings. And there was a long discussion uh, on the board about having an honour roll in the cathedral of those who'd you know, given more than a million dollars to the restoration. This went on for a long time. And I was getting a bit sick of it, a bit bored. So I said, I'd like to suggest a Bible verse for the honour board. Um, I said, what about they have their reward? <laughs> there was a long silence. <laughs> the Archbishop said, I think we'll move on to another topic now. wealthy people are celebrities, aren't they? And their opinion is sought on all sorts of matters in which they know absolutely nothing. We live in a deluded world, an idolatrous world. I talked earlier about the sins of churches, and of course the sins of churches echo and reflect the sins of the society. If you live in a society which worships money and security which we do, then the danger is that your church will do the same. That, that sin will infiltrate the church and the church will live the same kind of way and think that financial security is the great, the great security. For idols, you see, give us comfort, don't they, and meaning. They, re, they reinforce the worship of the, of the idol by making us feel better because we feel we fit into this world. But this, these, these verses show that God's judgment is on those who turn away from him and his ways. The next woe, verses 15 to 17, is about humiliating and degrading human beings. And I'm sorry to say that this is not removed from the way the West functions, nor removed from the way in which the British Empire functioned. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You'll be filled with shame instead of glory. See, they felt glorious because they could demean other people. That's how you promote yourself, by demeaning other people. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you've done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Your destruction of animals will terrify you, for you've shed man's blood. You've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. The moment you start destroying the environment, verse 17, the destruction of animals, verse 17, and finally the destruction of humans and their civilization is a great sin in the eyes of God. 
And then the climax of the woes is found in verses 18 and 19. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it, an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trust in his own creation and makes idols that cannot speak, woe to him who says to wood come to life, to lifeless stone wake up. Can it give guidance? It's covered with silver and gold. There is no breath in it. You see, power is in the hand of the wicked. And that can bewitch even believers in Jesus Christ. And we can think that we're going to lose and they're going to win. That is not true. We read in 1 Peter 2 that Jesus trusts him who judges justly. What a great statement. Whenever I hear the gloomy news about what's happening in the world, I say to myself, I trust him who judges justly. No one will get away with it. Individuals won't get away with it. And nations won't get away with it. God is a just judge of all. How does God judge nations? How will God judge Australia? By the way we treat other people. By what we gather for ourselves. And I think that Australia stands wanting in those areas. Yes, the tyranny and rapacity contains the seeds of its own destruction. We see that in people's individual lives, see people who fight to get what they want and then are dissatisfied when they get it. And we find that people who worship their idols are then deformed by their idols, bound by their idols, chained by their idols. They can't escape them. They've built their own future. They've built their own destruction. And yet there are two verses of promise, aren't there? Verse verse 14 and verse 20. For this destruction of Babylon, which is a, a just judgment in the hands of God, will serve God's gospel purposes. For in the midst of all this turmoil, the sin of God's people, the power of Babylon and the destruction of Babylon, in all this turmoil and destruction, God is working out his gospel purpose. Here it is in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a beacon of light that is, shining in a very gloomy chapter, isn't it? That in the midst of what God is doing with the nations, in the midst of all the nation, what the nations are doing, as uh, Babylon faces its end, as the, the captives kind of rise against Babylon, as they're defeated by the Persians, all this will serve God's long-term gospel purpose. The earth, not just Judah, not just that part of the world, but the earth will be filled, not with violence, not with injustice, not with cruelty, not with rapacity. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that promise we know will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ 
And we're looking for its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ when the last enemy to be destroyed, death, is finally defeated. No wonder we pray, come Lord Jesus. No wonder we pray uh, in the Lord's Prayer, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. For here is the promise that sustains our faith in its darkest hour. Here is the word of God which sustains us when we see destruction or injustice around us. Here is the word of God which sustains us when we fear for our future. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I was speaking at a Reformed Pastors Conference, I think 25 years ago it was, and they were slightly shocked to find an Anglican in their midst. And this very, very big pastor, who was about six times my size, came up to me at morning coffee and said, how can you bear to be in a mixed church? He meant the Anglicans are corrupt. How can you possibly endure being an Anglican? So I said, well, um, I said, I think the New Testament prepares me quite well to live in a mixed church. And then I took my courage in both hands and I said, and I imagine even the Reformed Church has some kind of sins. There was a long silence. (laughs) And then a laughter erupted, I'm pleased to say. Can we bear to live in a corrupt world and a corrupt church? Well, the world will be corrupt and the church will be corrupt until the Lord Jesus returns. I've often had people come to me and say, I'm thinking of you know, joining your church. I say, well, what church have you come from? Oh, well, they say, you know, I tried that church, then I tried that church, then I tried that church, and now I thought I'd try your church. <laughs> and I, see, I say, I always said, you'll find the same problems, as a matter of fact, in this church, because you bring them with you. That's my pastoral approach. I hope you appreciate it. (laughs) I'm known for my pastoral delicacy and so forth. Gentleness of touch. Well, don't we find, uh, you know, sincere young Christians, I mean anybody under 50, uh, who are really upset about the sin of the church. Uh, And I say, well, you're a justified sinner, You're saved by grace, so is the church. And as God has a bit more work to do in you, so God has a bit more work to do in the church. And one of the costs of ministry, I think, is working within a corrupt church. Because all our churches are corrupt. Because we ourselves are sinners. Because we are... Our minds are, as Calvin said, factories of idols. And the great test of faith, I think, is believing that the Lord Jesus will come again. That's the test of faith. And if we don't have that confidence, we won't last the distance. So I often go to the promises of uh, God in the scriptures. 
when I see churches collapsing, which I do quite frequently and hear horror stories about churches, I think to myself, Jesus said, I will build my church, and I believe that. How else can I go on with hope and confidence, you see? So here's the great promise, verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we know from the New Testament that that glory is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And the other promise is in verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. That is, God still reigns. Despite the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. That is, every complaint... Every antipathy, every rejection, every lack of trust will be silenced by the glory and power of the Lord our God. The destruction of Babylon is a promise, a warning of the destruction of all of the destruction of all human civilizations that raise their fists against God. We think of atheistic empires as doing that, but even empires which are nominally Christian do that as well. They do it by the way in which they treat people, and they do it by the way in which they accumulate wealth and trust in it. But all viciousness and all self-indulgent wealth all the worship of mammon will one day be judged by God. The only safe place to be is in the hands of God. The only safe place to be is trusting in Jesus Christ. The only safe place to be is trusting in the promises of God. The only safe place to be is sustaining our faith in God even as we wait for the coming of his kingdom when Jesus returns. I hope you are shocked by Habakkuk chapter 2 because this chapter questions the very basis of our Western civilization. It should make every one of us tremble with fear We think we're safe because we're wealthy. This says we are not safe because we are wealthy. At what cost is the wealth is the question. This is a shocking chapter for the church in Australia and a shocking chapter for Australia. It rebukes our self-indulgence, our worship of mammon, and our misuse of others. And in a global village, of course, we can't escape knowing about how our wealth is gained and how others are damaged by producing that wealth for us. I think we hear too much news. News is always bad news, isn't it? I now ration myself to one news broadcast a day. 
because the news is so bad. And it's very easy, I find, to get kind of oppressed by yet more trouble here at home or yet more trouble overseas. And that focuses us, doesn't it, on the kind of the human problem of the troubles. But actually the, the troubles are deeper than that, aren't they? The, the big problem of the world is not its troubles but its sin. And even a good democracy, benevolent democracy, of course, dishonours God by not honouring God. Even good citizens dishonour God by not honouring God. And the problem with our world and the problem with our church is not our financial problems, not our lack of resources, but our sin. That sin which will one day be judged. But we take God's patience, don't we, as an excuse to continue in our sin. We think, well, our church is getting away with it. He got away with it. I'll get away with it too. We misread God's patience and think that God doesn't care or God doesn't know. Habakkuk 2 should strike terror into our hearts, that terror which is the true fear of the Lord. And yet, as we know, that drives us to our Lord Jesus Christ in whom is forgiveness, in whom is sanctification, in whom are all the promises of God. And in Christ we see the promises of verse, verses 14 and 20 fulfilled. Indeed, as in the return of Christ, we see the warnings of judgment fulfilled. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And one day the earth will be silent before him when Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to see human history as you see human history. Please help us to see our nation as you see our nation. Please help us to see our churches as you see our churches. Please shake us by your word. May we be those who tremble at your word in fear and faith and hope. And may we find in the Lord Jesus all your gospel promises fulfilled. Please turn many men and women and children from our nation to you. Please turn many men and women and children from every nation in the world to you. And we pray for that day when people from every language, tribe, nation and people will sing glory to you and to the Lamb and honour and praise you forever. May the promise of this day bring us hope. For Christ's sake. Amen.